Hey guys, today we're going to wrap up our discussion of chapter one of Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand by delving into the metaphysically given as absolute. Stay tuned. All right, so in this section, we are talking about the metaphysically given as absolute. And let's start with a quick summary of this section. So Leonard starts by making this distinction that Ayn Rand recognized between the metaphysically given, metaphysically given facts, and man-made facts, facts that are under our control. And what he argues is that the metaphysically given is absolute. That means it is inherent in the identity of what exists, that it has that identity, that it obeys causal laws. To be setting aside the man-made is to be necessary. And this gives us a perspective on what hum- what power human beings have and don't have. That is, we are not creative in the sense of being able to create something out of nothing, to change the identities of what exists. But all of our creative power is just the power to rearrange what exists, obeying its identity. And uh, he invokes a quote that Ayn Rand often did from Francis Bacon, nature to be commanded has to be obeyed. So we go on to get that metaphysically given facts cannot be evaluated they have to be accepted and what we evaluate are man-made facts choices but the metaphysically given is not right or wrong true or false it is what we have to conform to then we get a discussion of the ways in which people don't conform to the metaphysically given and in particular the fallacy that Ayn Rand calls rewriting reality. We get a lot of instances in which people rebel against reality. And Leonard ends by pointing out that if you try to rewrite reality, you run into a big problem, which is that reality will not conform to your consciousness, that it that existence exists, A is A. And so what this can lead to is a metaphysical grudge, the idea that there's something wrong with reality reality does not live up to the demands of your consciousness or God's consciousness. And so this, he says, is the root of uh, the most important and destructive dichotomy in philosophy, the mind body or the soul body dichotomy. And he talks about the way in which we're going to see variants of this uh, dichotomy rise through philosophy and Ayn Rand reject them all reject them all in the name of one fundamental idea, existence exists. So I think a good way to start off is trying to get clear on what is the point of this section? What makes it distinct from the primacy of existence, which we've already talked about? And I think the first thing we can say is that um, we're trying to guard against or Um, avoid a very common error in the history of philosophy, the necessary contingent dichotomy. Leonard talks about this in much more detail in his essay, The Analytic Synthetic Dichotomy, an introduction to objectivist epistemology. And what he draws out is the way in which philosophers throughout history, but particularly since um, human Kant, have divided facts or propositions or truths into two categories truths that are necessary and truths that are contingent and so a necessary truth would be something like water is wet contingent truth water freezes and turns to ice at a certain temperature and what you get since human Kant is a view of well look uh, contingent 
contingent truths are all we get through observation and logical inference from observation. What reason can give us is only these contingent truths. And yeah, it may turn out, or we we may find that water um, freezes at a certain temperature, but we don't know that it has to do that. And so we don't know that it's going to do it tomorrow. We don't have any kind of certainty. The only things we do have certainty over are necessary truths, but those are all tautological. They're empty. They're basically true by definition or true by convention. They don't tell us anything about reality. And so what we've basically done is cut man's mind from having certain knowledge about the world itself. And so what Leonard is saying here is that from objectivism's perspective, truths that are reached by observation and logical inference, um, setting aside the man-made they are necessary to be is to be necessary because the universe wasn't created by a god who could have created it a different way the universe doesn't have volition and so to be is all you need to know that something had to be so it's just a it's a very different perspective on the issue of necessity the only thing that didn't have to be is human choice is our ability to select between alternatives and so that's that's the realm of man-made facts facts that can be as we'll talk about judged and assessed but i don't think that this section is primarily or um or would exist if its only purpose was to refute an error that's more polemical and this isn't even the kind of polemics that leonard usually devotes entire sections to which are the most fundamental um uh, errors in philosophy so we want to think about okay well what really is being added by this section i think the right way to think about what's going on here is an attempt to integrate the primacy of existence with free will now hierarchically free will is going to come in the next chapter once we turn to epistemology but philosophy is a total and so there's going to be a question when we get to epistemology of how do we integrate free will with the primacy of existence how do we um, integrate causality with our ability to select between alternatives but you can look at what this section is doing the other way which is we're in effect saying how can we uh, how can we maintain primacy of existence when it seems that there's choice and that's really kind of the focus here is what does it mean to integrate or to bring together these perspectives of the primacy of existence and free will Um, To put it another way, objectivism has to be able to do two things, to be able to say free will is causal and to be able to say that that you can have a primacy of existence, lawful view of the universe, um, and that that be consistent with free will. Now, the core answer we're going to get of how to integrate these two views is that we need to make a distinction not between necessity and contingency. We need to make a distinction between man-made facts, which are open to choice which could have been otherwise and the metaphysically given which could not have been otherwise and that consciousness is um if you want to break it down this way in effect in the next chapter what we're going to see is that volition is not an exception to causality it's a kind of it and what this chapter we are doing is saying that that the power of free will is not the power Um, to override the primacy of existence it's not the power to create something from nothing it's not the power to change the identity of that which exists It is the power to gain awareness of reality and then of human beings to rearrange reality in accordance with 
the identities of that which exist. So that's what we want to elaborate a little bit on now. So we have this distinction between the metaphysically given and the man-made, and it's important, it's vital that we make this distinction, because as Leonard talks about here, and as Ayn Rand stresses even more in her essay, The Metaphysical Versus the Man-Made, is that it's precisely through blurring or failing to maintain this distinction that we end up in a primacy of consciousness view. So one of the points Ayn Rand makes is that, in effect, the kind of pre-civilized starting point is for human beings to project all uh, our way of operating, our form of causality, volitional causation, onto the rest of nature. So that even though the primacy of existence is um, self-evident and is known self-evidently, it's implicit in our knowledge from a very early age, um, making that explicit and maintaining it is a real achievement. And her view is that primitive pre-civilized societies, like people don't do that. They, in effect, have a form of animism where, I mean, this is, you know, the idea that the way you deal with the causality of nature is that it's the whim of spirits and you have to deal with them the same way that we would deal with people, right? You have to deal with them through persuasion, through, in effect, trying to get on their good side and avoid getting on their bad side. And it's once civilization, and in particular ancient Greece in the 5th and 6th hundreds, uh, hundreds BC, when they grasp the concept of nature and get, get nature as a, a, a lawful causal um, order that operates differently than their minds, then you're able to go beyond that. And so you're able to think about existence in a primacy of existence lawful causal terms but once people reach that stage or or Ayn Rand's view is that even though we are decently good at that in the physical sciences that in the humanities we are abysmal that this perspective on nature and causality and identity is thrown out. And in particular, it's the idea that man has identity is thrown out. And so another way you can think about this and that she really stresses is that it's really through the issue of blending and inverting the metaphysical and the man-made that a that civilized, sophisticated uh, people drop into the primacy of consciousness. Like there's, it is... It's the exception more than the rule that people are openly primacy of consciousness in everyday life, right? Like there's things like the secret where it's, yeah, literally my thinking I'm going to get a million dollars will bring me a million dollars absent my actions. Um, usually it's not these blatant forms of the primacy of consciousness that uh, people embrace. It is through the blending of the man-made and the metaphysical, and that's what's really going to be explored here. You know, if, if, if the purpose of this section is to integrate free will and the primacy of existence, another way to think about this section is to show what are the non-obvious mistakes that we make that lead us to fall into a primacy consciousness approach. Now, to make this fully clear, let's kind of delve into how objectivism thinks about this distinction. There's a core problem in human life of answering the question, what am I responsible for and what am I not? What am I in control of and what am I not? Um, what should I feel, you know, uh, guilty for not, for not doing and what is outside my power to do? 
Now, objectivism's answer can best be summarized by the serenity prayer, which Ayn Rand herself cites. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And so elaborating on that, um, th- this is really what Ayn Rand is going to say, like the, the, the distinction that this is groping for, the way to tell what I cannot change and what I can is through distinguishing between metaphysically given facts and man-made facts. And so sort of here's one way that she'll, she summarizes her view. To rebel against the metaphysically given is to engage in a futile attempt to negate existence. To accept the man-made is beyond challenge is to engage in a successful attempt to negate one's consciousness. Serenity comes from the ability to say yes to existence. Courage comes from the ability to say no to the wrong choices made by others. And the point is that this is not obvious. This is not automatic. Is that there's often a misidentification of what's within our power uh, and what's not. There's often an inversion of treating things that didn't have to be man-made products of choice as if they're beyond judgment and to treat metaphysically given facts as something that we can judge condemn or change and so that's kind of the error that we need to guard against and Ayn Rand's point is that this distinction once made can it, it, it can be hard to apply and in particular it can be hard when it comes to understanding um, what aspects of us as human beings and our consciousness are metaphysically given and man-made. Um, the very you know question of like what part of my abilities are sort of innate and automatic versus what can I achieve if I push myself and try? There's a lot of tricky questions. Um, it, you know how much of my personality is you know things that are uh, set by my genes. How much of it is something that I can change and alter through consciousness? And then there's an issue of there's some things that you can change, but you can't change them immediately and directly. So um, an example that Jason Ryan cites in his essay on metaphysics in the Blackwell Companion to Ayn Rand is something like, you know, addiction, where that's something that's open to choice over time. But it's a fact that if you're addicted, like you've cultivated that as a character. So uh the 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 core thing here is not that in making this distinction we can automatically answer every instance or concrete application of what is open change and what's not um it can still take a lot of effort to know but the point is that we need to know that that's what we need to identify in order to be able to say yeah this is what i'm in control of and therefore responsible for and this is what i'm not and then when I am able to exercise control, how do, how do I go about that? What does it mean to do that effectively? Now, as I've said, because this distinction isn't obvious, we can go wrong in both ways. That is, we can treat the metaphysically given as if it were man-made, as if it were open to choice. We can try to, um, we can refuse to accept the things we cannot change. And there we can also treat the man-made that which could have been otherwise as beyond judgment as unchangeable as something that you know uh as as if it were a law of nature not to be questioned now i want to give um some of ayn rand's examples of both of those errors 
one of the really interesting things and um, sort of surprising things is how many examples she gives in this essay. Uh, it's probably more examples of a principle um, than any other principle I can think of in objectivism where she's just giving us different variants of this. But here's uh, just a f some of them. So these are examples of treating the metaphysically given as if it's open to volition, as if it's not absolute. Just as the country didn't have 50 states, so the solar system didn't have to have nine planets. She cites this as something that philosophers will often throw out to students in order to say, hey, look, you know, nature's contingent. Uh, any form of rewriting reality, which, such as the desire for a universe where there's no frustration, pain, or illness, the rationalization that I would be brave, honest, ambitious in a world where others automatically shared those virtues, but not the world as it is. Dread of death, feeling guilty for not knowing things you had no way of knowing, feeling guilty for not having known yesterday what you learned today, feeling guilty for not being able to convert the whole world to your own ideas effortlessly and overnight. Well, now we have examples of treating the man-made as necessary as beyond judgment, as absolute. I can't help it. That's the way I am. Asking not what's required to do it, but can I do it? Do I have the innate ability? And when you make a mistake, not what do I need to learn, but what's wrong with me? Any form of tradition worship, worshiping and pandering to the feelings of other people, regardless of the truth or falsehood of the issues involved, and on the premise that it doesn't matter whether this is true, if people feel that it's true. By the way, I mean, it can be a fruitful exercise. And in these videos, I've tried to encourage or show like my effort to like look for examples. And in particular, this is a really good one to look for examples where you still might be um, treating the metaphysically given if it's man-made and vice versa. Because I think this is one that I see a lot of, mostly with people interested in objectivism. It's usually holding yourself to too high a standard. That is, um, not exactly too high a standard, but rather the wrong standard, which is taking responsibility and feeling guilt for uh, not achieving what is not actually open to you or not open to you immediately and automatically. But um, totally encouraged to keep an eye out because this is a fundamental principle you see everywhere and it's one even good people can fall into. So with all that groundwork laid, we can go back to the earlier point that it is by conflating the metaphysical and the man-made that we slip into primacy of consciousness. And so the the basic point here is that every form of treating the metaphysical as if it were man-made were man -made and vice versa is a form of adopting the primacy of consciousness perspective. So if you're treating the metaphysical as if it were man-made, you're basically saying that the universe is ruled by the con some consciousness. It's essentially a religious viewpoint that says God could have made the universe differently, um, but he chose not to. Why did, you know, why? It's ch and, and so it's it, the only way in which you, that view can be coherent is through some sort of uh, implicit or explicit view of, the con of a universe ruled by consciousness. Then looked at the other side, treating the man-made as if it were metaphysically given this is treating the consciousness of other people as superior to reality, as if the, my 
orientation should not be on looking out at the facts of reality, but just taking orders from other men, not judging them at, uh, by whether they're right or wrong, by whether they conform to reality or not. So that's really the main point I wanted to make in this video, that what this section is really about is integrating um, the primacy of existence with the fact of free will, that it's through conflating the metaphysically given and the man-made and, and reversing them and inverting them. That's the primary way in which we adopt a primacy of consciousness view. And so that what we want to do is we want to have a clear distinction in our mind between these two kinds of facts, and then we want to understand and apply um, that distinction in our thinking so that we can take responsibility for what we can change and work to change it, and so that we serenely accept that which we cannot change. A couple more points, and the first thing I want to discuss is Ayn Rand and Leonard Peikoff both stress that we cannot judge the metaphysically given as true or false, right or wrong. And in fact, Leonard puts it in particularly stark terms where he says, the metaphysically given must be accepted without evaluation. And you might think, or at least I thought, well, look, can't we evaluate the metaphysically given? Like, can't you say COVID-19, for instance, is bad? And the basic point is, no, we can't. We cannot judge this bad in, if what we're saying is that it's wrong, it shouldn't exist. The point that the metaphysically given has to be accepted without evaluation means that properly it is the standard of evaluation to... Um, say that it's bad or that it's wrong in any fundamental sense say it doesn't conform to reality no that's reality and it's our job to conform to it so what we can evaluate is that we can evaluate how what does it mean to conform to this fact of reality so what Ayn Rand and Leonard are really um, dismissing is this idea of stamping our foot at reality and you know whooshing it away or um, any form of the idea that if we don't acknowledge it, it won't exist. And so what you, the, the way to, if, and if you actually look at the COVID-19 debate, you really see, I think in both sides, um, a version, some version of not accepting this idea that the metaphysically given has to be accepted without evaluation. So on the one side, you have people who basically downplay and deny the risk because, well, this would be really inconvenient for my life and what I want. And uh, I don't mean everybody who thought that the lockdowns were a bad idea, which I did, but there was a certain attitude of, like, this does it, this is going to be really bad for us, and so we're, we're going to pretend that it's not a problem and, in effect, ignore it. The... Again, not everybody who was, uh, you know, pushing back against kind of scaremongering, but but there was that element there. And then on the other side, there were the people who said, if this risks even one life, we can't go about life. And what they, in effect, are ignoring is the metaphysically given fact that risks are inherent in life. And that what we have to do is decide how to navigate those risks. And instead, it was this petulant demand that I refuse to function and I refuse to let anybody else function until reality conforms to my wish that it be risk-free. So what, what, what Ayn Rand is opposing and what Leonard Peikoff is opposing is not the idea that we have to judge the, how to conform to the metaphysically given and say, like, it's a fact that COVID-19 exists. It's a fact that it's a threat to human, human health and human life. And therefore, 
in order to deal with it, we have to conform to reality. We have to conform by recognizing this risk. We have to conform by leaving, figure, leaving people free to figure out how to adapt to it. We have to understand its nature and the nature of potential drugs and things so that we can hopefully um, create a vaccine for it. So it's at every step what we're doing is we are uh, accepting what is and making all our evaluations and setting our course of action in order to navigate through it is but at no point is there a view of like what is shouldn't be no what is is there is no perspective from which you can say that it shouldn't be except from a god perspective that well if i had created the universe i would have created it differently and that's exactly the perspective that uh the primacy of conscious perspective we're trying to push out one really important point that comes up in this section for the first time is uh, what I indicated in the summary. Leonard Peikoff makes this point that if we try to rewrite reality, we are going to be frustrated because reality does not bend to our wishes. And so what this can lead to is the idea of um, you know, a metaphysical grudge against reality and the, the separating out into two realities this clash between consciousness and existence so we're experiencing a clash between our consciousness and existence and project that out say well there's this reality that's higher and better than the world that we perceive around us and um and you know this world is low it's imperfect and so on and this is the whole kind of platonic way of dividing things up and that this is really the root of the mind body dichotomy or the soul body dichotomy and gives rise to a bunch of other dichotomies such as fact and value theory practice love and sex and leonard lists a whole bunch of others and um i wanted to um give an example a contemporary example that I think really helps illustrate this, and that is the thinker who's a psychologist, but he delves into a lot of philosophic issues, Jordan Peterson. And um, there's a lot I like about Jordan Peterson, but if we're just looking at it from a philosophic perspective, his whole starting point is this idea that life is suffering. Um, it's explicitly where he begins his thinking about things. And why is it suffering? Well, in part, it's the malevolent choices of people. But even deeper than that, he names just the fact that life is filled with frustration, with loss, with death, that ultimately, you know, everything, you know, we're going to lose everything. And so this is the tragedy and sorrow of life. And that's the kind of foundational piece. And then what he says is, well, how do we find meaning in that kind of universe? <clears throat> but the, by starting with this metaphysical grudge, you see him then end up endorsing various variants of the mind-body dichotomy. So the very way that his book Maps of Meaning starts out is by this distinction between value and fact. He says there's a realm of science, it's the realm of fact, it's the realm of causal laws, and then there's this other realm, it's a completely separate realm, which is the realm of action, the realm of values. So it's dividing the whole world up into, um, into the realm of soul or mind and the realm of body and it's the it's you know the 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 platform the arena of action and the arena of science and these are two separate worlds that need not have a lot to do with each other and it and 
just to give kind of one of the most concrete ways then this plays out, which is that I think you definitely see a love-sex uh, dichotomy. Um, for, just to take one super revealing example is that he's uh, against or basically tries to guilt people and says it weakens them to engage in masturbation, which is all coming from this perspective that you know sex is low and animalistic and uh, is not living up to the higher things in life that give life meaning. And in fact, what <clears throat> we need to do because we can't get rid of this animalistic urge is we need to civilize it by bringing it within the context of love, which uh, I would say he more or less means marriage. Um, but it's so you can see how if you start with the idea that I'm going to evaluate the metaphysically given, you'll be led to a primacy of existence uh, through in the mind-body dichotomy that will radiate throughout your take on life all the way to a, such a seemingly unrelated topic as love and sex. So I uh, hope that integration is helpful. Um, I certainly found it clarifying to understand how these ideas play out. One final point I wanted to touch on, and I still don't feel 100% clear about it myself, um, is that if in Ayn Rand's essay, The Metaphysical Versus the Man-Made, she really stresses the role that um, the law of identity, and in particular rejecting the fact that man has identity or rebelling against the fact that man has identity is really a central issue here. And so here's currently how I understand what she's arguing for. So I mentioned before that, you know, Ayn Rand says, like, look, we get uh, more or less the law of identity, the distinction between the metaphysical and the man-made in the realm of the physical science uh, sciences. You know, we don't do rain dances to make it rain. But that in the realm of the humanities, in particular when it's, uh, it comes to the metaphysical nature of man, that there, not only we aren't we clear on the distinction between the metaphysically given and the man-made, there's a real attempt by philosophers and thinkers to erase that distinction, to in effect say man has no identity. Why is exempting man from the law of identity uh, so uh, such an important issue or in such an important error? And the basic point Ayn Rand makes is that if you take into account man's metaphysically given nature as a volitional, cre uh, volitional creature, there's two things that follow. One is that you have to judge the man-made critically. You can't accept it as the given. You have to judge it. Does it actually conform to reality? And then two, you have to recognize that other people's volition is outside of your control. That, you know, a you can destroy another person's mind. You can stop them through force of acting on the conclusions of their mind, but you cannot operate their mind. You cannot control it. You cannot make it think, make it see. So now we get Ayn Rand's view of freedom or the, the metaphysical root of freedom is you can say that um, unlike nature, man isn't to be obeyed because he's not automatically correct. He's not automatically conforming to reality. He can get things wrong. His choices have, could have been otherwise. So we have to be critical about the man-made. And so, and that we cannot try to command the 
the minds of others that precisely because the mind has to operate volitionally by the individual that the only way in which to deal with others what it means to um uh you know it, what it means to change other people so if we're thinking about the idea of uh, accept the things I cannot change. I cannot change other people's choices. I cannot control their volition. To change the things I can, to change the things you can in the realm of the man-made, in the realm of the volitional, is to recognize that it can only be done through knowledge, through persuasion. And so what Ayn Rand thinks is going on with trying to uh, reject or dismiss or ignore or erase the fact that man has identity, that he is a metaphysically given nature as a volitional being in which he um, can should not be commanded or obeyed but dealt with through persuasion, that that is the biggest barrier to people who want power, to people who want to destroy and control man's mind. And so in throwing out that man has identity, what you in effect is get an inversion that says it's nature that's contingent um, and in effect ruled by uh, free will and chance, and that it's human beings who have to be conquered um, and uh, the way that we conquer nature. It's that we obey reality, and this is in effect like the environmentalist idea of we just basically sit around and try not to offend nature by impacting it too much and it will take care of us. But when it comes to human beings, no, those human beings we can impact, we can coerce, we can force, we can conquer um, because they don't have identity. And that's really the deepest danger. And in particular, she ends with, Ayn Rand really thinks that there's been this concerted philosophic attack on man's identity, in particular, the identity of his mind, and, uh, and, uh, and above all, the most intelligent mind's and that's how she ends her essay, which she thinks is the most open example of the attack on intelligence and the attack on man's identity, John Rawls. And um, I, I discuss Rawls quite a bit in the book I did with Yaron Brook equals unfair, uh, that we don't get into, uh, we, what we don't get into is Ayn Rand's deepest perspective on what Rawls and the egalitarians are doing, which is that it's an attack on man's identity as a volitional creature and an attack on his intelligence as a uh, as the source of productive power. All right, that's it for this section and for this chapter. What we've covered so far is the three basic axioms, existence, consciousness, identity. The law of identity applied to action, that's the law of causality. We have causality as a corollary to identity. We discussed the primacy of existence and the fact that existence comes first and consciousness is just awareness of existence. And now we've gotten that the metaphysically given is absolute, that human beings don't have the power to control or change the identities of that which exists, but to become aware, understand, and then rearrange with that knowledge the identities of what exists. So uh, next time, uh, some point in the near future, I'll be doing an open Q&A on chapter one, and soon we'll uh, turn to chapter two, where we will go into sense experience and volition. Talk soon.